GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand. Hello, thanks for joining us for Gibraltar today. Our focus is on the oil spill. Eight days on, how's the cleanup going? How do young conservationists feel about it? We spoke to 17-year-old volunteers from the Nautilus Project, Mikey Ruggeroni, Joe Spencer-Brown and Pavlo Kuzner. But first we hear from the captain of the port. After a year of angst with the OS35, I put to John Guillaume that he needed this oil spill like a hole in the head. Yeah, definitely a very unfortunate circumstance and not something that uh, we wanted in any way. Tell us, take us back eight days. Um, when were you informed about the oil spill and, and how did you feel? Shortly after the notification was received at BTS, uh, I got a call from my senior port officer advising me of the situation. At that point, we were still uh, trying to firm up information. Uh, so it must have been about 25 past uh, shortly after that, 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, and at that point, um, not really time to feel anything, rather just um, the scramble to get activate the contingency plans uh, and get the information so that we can start taking the right decisions. So you hear oil spill and you know you need to do A, B, C and these are the people who need to be involved. Well, bear in mind that we don't, normally what's reported is not an oil spill. It's, um, it tends to be reported, first of all, as oil overflow on deck. Some oil might have come uh, over the deck into the sea. We always treat it at that point as an oil spill and we always over-escalate. So at that point, it's scrambling to make sure that our over-escalation is uh, in relation, is, is consequential to uh, what we are actually finding and, and the information we are confirming. So you, 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 you go out there, you deploy your, your uh, vessels and, and you get eyes on the situation and you look at the sea and, and, and you start piecing it together and, and, and working out how, how much fuel has spilled and, and, and how, when did that information start feeding back to you and, and when did you start realising that it was a significant spill? I think within, within 10 minutes, by the time I was up at VTS, uh, we were aware that it wasn't a minor... Uh, oil spill in terms of a couple of litres as, as uh, initial reports suggested. Uh, we, as, as we normally do, we were over-escalating anyway uh, because we know that there's a tendency to underestimate from the reporting uh, party what has been spilt. Uh, so preparations were already underway. And at that point, it's the most frustrating part of my job. It's um, mobilising teams, getting slow-moving maritime assets onto target to tackle uh, the oil that we can track and see. Claire, I, I think you, you made this point last week and, and it did sort of hit home uh, that, the, that the oil can, be, uh, can move, I suppose, a little bit more quickly and certainly more unpredictably than, than the vessels can that deploy to try and contain it. Yeah, and there's a response time. I mean, um, we mobilise uh, teams very least we're talking about 30 minutes for them to be ready to leave the, the harbour. Then to get from the harbour to the to the target area, depending where that target area, in this instance, it was the southern extent of BGTW, uh, we're looking at close to 30, 40 minutes. So we're already talking an hour, an hour, five minutes, an hour, 10 minutes, where you're just 
trying to get into place. Yes. And um, yeah, of course. And and the the the, the spill has a, a head start on you, and it's already making its way towards the That's the right. coastline. So it, it it washes ashore. Um, we think that most of it, uh, most of the oil that has made its way to shore, has made its way to Gibraltar's coastline and hasn't had an impact on on the Spanish coastline. We were unfortunate with the weather combination that we had because the the oil, for once, the oil patch stayed in one uh, continuous uh, patch. That patch, we had uh, a slight change and southwesterly came in with a lot of force, which coincided with uh, tidal conditions that brought it straight into shore. Uh, it impacted in a very localized area, which was... Uh, basically directly to the south of Roja Bay on the outside. And from there, what we had was secondary uh, contamination of remobilized oil impacting at various points, Cam Bay, Little Bay, and inside Roja Bay, and a very small extent into uh, into the area f- slightly further north. But what that unfortunate combination of weather has, always, has also done is it stranded all the oil in that very... Uh, localized area which is a very challenging area to clean up but it also means that we've had zero uh, impact to wider to the wider coastline and we've done a, a an estimation which we've put out on press releases uh, we're estimating easily between a thousand and two thousand liters and if you take into account the amount of damage that that sort of oil can do uh, free floating and impacting various areas it is within the unfortunate scenario. It is uh, somewhat fortunate that it's stranded in one specific place. So that does sound like a lot of oil. Although it is, I mean, heavy fuel oil is not good for the marine environment, but it's heavy, and it doesn't spread as much as uh, it doesn't sheen as much as some of the other um, fuels. Or, or am but, I wrong in that? Normally, he- heavy fuel oil. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. What we have. Since 2020 is the new type of fuel oil, which is very low sulfur fuel oil, which has lighter components. Uh, we talked at length during the OS35 incident about the challenges that this fuel had. At various times, it acts like uh, distillates, uh, gas oil, in terms of sheening and opening very widely. And then when it comes against hard surfaces, it reforms into uh, the black, thicker stuff. Right. Um, again, in that sense, by stranding in a very um, specific location it, it, it actually uh, has helped us to control it well that's good I mean we heard the Department of the Environment's Chief Executive Liesel, Dr. Liesel Mezilio estimate that maybe as much as 80% of the impact of the spill had been mitigated uh, in in the cleanup effort that has been carried out um, I- over the past seven or eight days do you share her optimism? Absolutely, and and I think it's it's the right moment to mention that part of our contingency plan for an oil spill is to immediately notify certain organisations, chief among them being the Department of Environment. So we work very closely. We are working very closely uh, with the Department of Environment on an hourly basis in monitoring how the cleanup is going and managing the cleanup. Uh, and in any case, we always work very closely together.
We've got a question coming in from Wilfred. Um, he says, in these cases, generally, who is responsible for safely delivering fuel? Is it the the ship that's receiving the bunker fuel or is it the vessel that's supplying it? Without wanting to go into too many technicalities, it's a, it's a joint effort. So the bunker barge which is supplying the fuel has custody of the fuel until the custody transfer point, which is the receiving vessel's manifold. In this case, we know, and, and this is about as much as I can comment on this because of the active um, investigation which might lead to prosecution, uh, we know that the fuel flow uh, overflowed from the receiving vessel's tanks. So that clearly puts the responsibility on managing those tanks on the receiving vessel. So without going into the specifics of this case, um, we've had uh, a few of our listeners um, relate to us their surprise that this is even possible uh, given their experience of refueling which is inevitably or, or, or most for most of us uh, when we think of refueling we think of a car you go to the petrol station you, you you put the nozzle you choose what fuel you need you put the nozzle in your car and and then you can almost switch off because inevitably the pump will tell you when uh, the, the tank is full enough and it stops for you. It's an, an automatic process. Is there no automatic technology used for bunker transfers? There, there is some automation used uh, in bunker transfers, but I think going back to the parallel of the petrol station, even with that automatic process, you still have overflows of tanks and you still have oil spills on the forecourt of the petrol station. So I think... Bear in mind that we're talking about a fuel tank on a car, which is normally between 40 litres and 90 litres. We're talking about vessels that are taking um, a thousand tonnes, which equates to a million litres at any given time. The process is completely different. One of the first steps that was taken for bunkering is you cannot fill over the top, which is this idea of putting a nozzle onto the top of the tank. That you cannot do because it's not inherently not safe. So... It goes into a common manifold. There are a system of valves on the receiving vessel that then diverts to each specific tank. And there are a, a whole range of procedures which take place before bunkering starts. I mean, the typical thing, the bunker barge will go alongside the receiving vessel and there'll be a pre-bunker delivery conference between the two parts that can take anything from 45 minutes to two hours where they discuss pumping rates, uh, the amount of tanks that the receiving vessel is is filling, the sequence in which they're filling them, etc., etc. Well, given the volume of fuel, you mentioned bunker rates. What are typical um, rates at which fuel is being transferred from uh, the, the vessel delivering it to the vessel receiving it? How fast does that fuel move? Well, I would say the average would be about 200 metric tons per hour, which is, which equates to 200,000 litres per hour. Is it comparable to... I mean, I'm just trying to think of the, you know, 1,000 to 2,000 litres being... escaping. My, Did that happen quickly? 200,000 litres divided by 60, and that gives you an indication of how much per minute... I'm going to do the maths very quickly, but I'm going to ask you another question while I do it, because I'm, I'm okay with maths, but you, you caught me off guard there for a moment. Oh, 
3,333, Kelly, uh, our show's producer, says that it's uh, 3,333 um, litres per minute, I suppose? Per minute. Per minute. Uh, so so we're talking about seconds of, of, of overspill then, effectively, probably. On, on this occasion? Yeah. Um, I can't go into the details. Okay. Um, we know exactly how much time elapsed between the overflow starting and the receiving vessel realizing that they had an overflow. But but it's uh, still being investigated, and until the investigation runs its course, you're not going to go into the detail of it? Yep. Okay, and, and can you just um, bring us in and remind us who carries out that uh, investigation and, and roughly what timeline might they be working to? There's a number of investigations taking place in parallel. So the vessel, the receiving vessel, is a Panamanian flag, Korean re- Korean uh, register, which is the classification society for the vessel. Both Panama and Korea have done their own investigation audits of what happened on the vessel. Separately, we've made uh, we've asked the RGP to do an investigation with a view to looking at prosecution. Uh, the maritime administration, as part of port state control requirements, has done their own investigation together with the port state control which led to the detention of the vessel and identifying a number of issues as well. So there are a whole range of investigations, but I think the one which constrains my ability to talk about it is the RGP-led one, uh, which is leading to possibly a prosecution. Fair enough. And without going then into the specifics of this case, in general terms, what is the role that the Port Authority plays um, in such bunker procedures? Do you, do you have like supervision? Do you, do you make sure that certain documentation is filled out? We prescribe very specifically all the documentation that's involved in the bunker, in the bunker delivery process. We license the bunker delivery companies. We license the individual bunker delivery barges. We license the cargo officers in charge of the, of the bunker delivery operations on the bunker barges. Uh, all of those uh, licensing regimes allows us to have an element of enforcement on the supply vessel. Um, we also have, uh, it's a booklet rather than a, than a, a, than a guidance, but it's uh, a bunkering code of practice, which is specific to Gibraltar and is widely held up internationally as an exemplar of best practice. We're talking now to some young volunteers of the uh, charity The Nautilus Project, a marine conservation charity, of course, who we love having on uh, Gibraltar today and on Radio Gibraltar. And uh, they've been doing what they describe as gruesome, soul-wrenching work to clean up Gibraltar's shoreline. Let me say good afternoon to Pavlo Kuzner, Joe Spencer-Brown and Mikey Ruggeroni. Lovely to have you in the studio, guys. Thank you um, very much for having us. Why, why do you describe it as soul-wrenching? I'm not sure who it was, but um, that's the. Uh, it would, is that accurate? Is it really disheartening to see? It is, because it is just going down to our coastlines and seeing it change so radically... And then, especially when you learn of the long-lasting effect, it takes almost ten years. It takes over ten years for the coastline to make a full recovery for the long and lasting effect, and for that to happen so frequently and in our very own home is absolutely, yeah, it's, it's gut wrenching. Yeah. It's it's a it's a difficult one to mm-hmm. to accept, you know. Um, and you guys 
love the marine environment uh, and and you've been part of a volunteer effort to to try and uh, do your little bit to to help clean up the oil that has washed ashore what has it been like it's been it's been quite hard it's been like what you said before grueling gruesome grueling work and also it feels sometimes it does feel like our efforts are like a bit not useless but aren't like because the water will just wash the oil back up onto the rocks it's more it's more just annoying just to get it all off and then for it to just restart start all over again which is why we've been going most days last week and we're going tomorrow again as well amazing well congratulations or, or thank you i should say really for um for that volunteer work which is i suppose helping to even though if it's if it's difficult and it feels like it, that you know the sea washes it back up and 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 it undoes some of your good work i'm sure that you are chipping away at it we heard the uh, department of the environment ceo Liesel Torres, uh, Liesel Mesilio, tell us that um, she thinks that um, the, the cleanup is having a very positive impact and, and that potentially we're removing um, up to 80% of uh, the negative effects that this would have on the marine environment uh, for years to come. Um, is that something that you can identify with? Uh, did you get the sense when you're down there doing the cleanup that you know things are going well? It's um, definitely noticeable. We do see changes. We do see buckets and buckets and kilos of oil um, removed, and they do definitely have uh, very positive effects on the wildlife. I mean, removing even just a towel worth of oil helps. Because oil will just stay in the water f for ages, for years and years and years. So we definitely are making uh, a positive impact. And I think it's really, really good work that we're doing. All the volunteers, we've had extraordinary support, towels given to donated to us, a lot of donations. It's It's been fantastic. Yeah, well, I mean, you don't need to say it because th th there have been a lot of people saying it for you uh, on our social media. Uh, Lezanne says, amazing work. You're all superheroes. Jackie said, well done to everyone involved with the clearing up. Martin thinks that you're doing a, a grand job. Uh, maybe I can bring Joe in and, and ask you, Joe, which, ha from your experience, where have you been cleaning and, and, and w what areas do you think have been worst affected? Um, I mean, we've been cleaning from Rosia to um, the little beach below Rosia, and I think the little beach below it has been like worse affected because there's just oil all over the rocks and you know we're bringing out towels and towels full of just oil it's covered in oil our suits are covered everything's covered so you you didn't just sort of head down there you 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 were given like a, a little bit of a, a, a how to guide on 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 how you needed to to do it and what what not to do and and then you were given protect um, personal protective equipment as well yeah pretty much yeah so we just got the run through of what to do what not to do you know if you feel dizzy because of the oil come up take a break you know have some water and chill out and then go back to it how, how strong is or are the smells as you're clearing up is it quite they're really strong yeah, yeah. they're really strong because it's everywhere you can't you can't get a break from it so it's our reporter Jonathan Sacramento last week said that he he could feel it stinging his eyes. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And um and and you've actually you guys have been lifting it up and 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 with your um PPE. 
Is it? I've heard it described. It's heavy fuel oil. I've heard it described as black peanut butter. Yeah, you could yeah. literally like, scoop it with your hands. It's that thick, and it's quite disheartening to see like animals struggling in it. Like we've seen like crabs and other fish in the oil just struggling to like move, and it's quite upsetting. That's marine life that you had previously been studying and yeah. been in awe of. Yeah, like we'd show them off. I like presentations we do with like little kids over the summer. And now it's just been completely destroyed, which is really upsetting. But it is what it is. And do you get the sense that there are patches which are okay, where the crabs and other marine life are, are less affected? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, some places are. But again, it's mostly like in the Roja Bay area, where that's like it's got like a high density of biodiversity, and it's all just congealed there, which is destroying the ecosystems there and life that's living there yeah um i, I was uh, lucky enough to be taken out by uh, my parents on that boat at the weekend and even though we stayed to the north uh, northwest of the harbor and the port i did um manage to get some oil on my feet i'm not sure where it came from but it took me ages to clean it off have you guys found that um, oil can be very stubborn to clean it's very difficult it is just a matter of scrub 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 and just keep scrubbing until you're you're happy that it's all gone there's no there's no miracle solution to getting it off it's simply scrub 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 get in the shower and just keep scrubbing until you're confident it's all off that was my uh that's what i did last week pretty much and um and you you've mentioned towels a few times i know that you were um taking uh towel donations is the nautilus project still after old towels if anybody has some lying yeah. around at home yeah so we would is there any, anything is something like any, any donations will help and go towards the cause so if people have like old towels lying around old like absorbent equipment lying around it would be very much useful excellent okay um you guys were nominated as morning heroes on the breakfast show last friday and there were some uh, really lovely messages um congratulations uh, on social media so I'll, I'll read one or two more christine said well done to all concerned what terrific teamwork um and and i think that uh, i heard was it you pablo who mentioned uh, the importance of of working together as a team yeah it is it is well it's obviously rough terrain by erosia, rocks and stuff. And so if we were all just to send in individually, work at it individually, it would be far more difficult. But working as a team, we're able to have people who aren't cleaning up the oil, but just as important, passing down towels, picking up the the bags of, well, contaminated towels. And we sort of create a human chain, passing it up, up to Rosia to the... Uh, to the disposal area pretty much and it is it helps so much having a team that's well communicating that's communicating well and it really just speeds up the process massively andrew uh, agrees with you guys that it's such a sad sight to see but he says well done to uh, the people at the nautilus project for volunteering to clean this latest oil spill up if you're listening have you seen the oil on our coastline or have you been impacted if you're looking to go to the beach but maybe you haven't been able to swim or or you're not confident do let us know 266 200 we'd love to hear from you but maybe i can while i've got you here guys i can ask you one or two more questions about the nautilus 
uh, project experience more generally because I know that you guys have been busy with some other stuff. You're wearing your um, youth monitor T-shirts. What what does that entail? Uh, and tell us a little bit about some of the things that you've enjoyed in recent weeks. Um, well, so sometimes we like get these camps and we look after youths and um you know we take them out doing stuff show them the wildlife you know and just make them ha have a good time and enjoy them. So i mean you say youths so you're making me feel old uh you guys are <laughs> you guys are what teenagers you're yeah. 15, yeah. 16? 17. 17. 17. Okay, apologies. I should have checked before starting. <laughs> 17. And, uh, and, and you've been helping out with, like... Uh, really? 12-year-olds. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Like, to like seven. Mm. Yeah, 7 yeah. to 12-year-olds. I mean, it varies, but it is really the... Educate them about the marine wildlife, our fragile but vital ecosystem. Start, if we start teaching them the young, they're more likely to learn. Okay, tell me a little bit about this seabed survey that you were um, helping with. Well, um, well, we've been sent out to several beaches along our coastlines with the objective to notice any sort of abnormal uh, wildlife or any sort of abnormalities in the coastline. We do snorkel surveys, for example. We get in the water early in the mornings um, before people get to the beaches and we snorkel around these areas to monitor any sort of wildlife, any sort of wildlife in distress and to make sure nothing is out of place to monitor any sort of sightings as well. We've been doing, looking out for fin whales. Joe and I were at Europa Point earlier this morning, 8, eight o'clock in the morning, spotting for fin whales and other wild marine life that may be migra migrating through the straits. And it's, it's vital for lab work, which is more to do with Lewis the Lewis's side of the charity. Lewis Stagnetto, sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, guys, um, before I leave you, um, in short, would you recommend young people getting involved with the Nautilus project? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, it's a good, it's a good experience. You know, it's a lot of fun. You learn a lot, and it could open your eyes to new things that you want to do. Okay, uh, well, on behalf of all of our listeners and viewers, uh, many of whom are getting in touch to say thank you uh, for being superheroes and for helping to clean up the oil spill. Uh, thanks again to Pavlo Kuzner, Joe Spencer-Brown and Mikey Ruggeroni. Adolfo, Adolfo Canaper has been in touch to say this about the volunteers. For the last eight days, my wife, Julia, and I, we've had a grandstand view of what has been going on at Rocha Bay. From early morning until the end of the day, a number of people that have been helping there, the, the hours that, I, that they've put in, in, in blazing sunshine, but I'm sure that the powers that be, the authorities, really ought to take note of the enormous work that has been done Thank you, Adolfo, for getting in touch with that lovely feedback on uh, the work of Pavlo, Joe, Mikey and other volunteers with the Nautilus Project. And I think Adolfo has said that he is going to nominate them for a Mayor's Award, which would be really lovely. And we've had so many positive comments uh, on that volunteer work that I'm sure that it would be very well received by the community and uh, just rewards, I'm sure, for the young ones for uh, their excellent contributions. 
We heard the uh, Nautilus Project volunteers talk about their volunteer uh, work being soul-wrenching because they are um, lovers of the marine environment. Uh, as young people, uh, they are worried about our impact on the planet generally. Uh, what comment would you make about the sustainability of the way that the bunkering industry is carried out in Gibraltar and and the extent to which best standards are adhered to generally? I think there's a couple of things we need to take into account. First of all, I think the Nautilus Project and all other volunteers, it's admirable uh, the the fact that they are conscious of the of the environment and they're and they're looking to be proactive. Um, that and this unfortunate incident does not equate to us having substandard practices, far from it. I mean, I'll give you a, a very typical example. You think of a reputable high standard port in Europe, maybe Rotterdam comes to mind. Rotterdam two years ago introduced a bunker licensing regime. They came to us to copy our model. So you, you think of yourselves as uh, being ahead of the curve, industry leaders? Yes, but not only we, it's not us thinking uh, of ourselves as industry leaders. The International Bunker Industry Association, Rotterdam is an example. We, we, when uh, the industry needs to have a working group to develop further standards, we are always invited to bring our experience and have input into that. Uh, and I can go through a list of ports and jurisdictions that are continuously asking us to give them guidance and even go uh, to their jurisdictions and, and help them set up best practice. I think we've got time for one last question. Um, and it's from Tom, who says, Thank you, Captain Gio, for the sterling work from yourself and the professional uh, the team of professionals. And he also says that earlier on in Gibraltar today, guests from the Nautilus Project uh, talked about their volunteer work and showed us the horrendous effect that remains for the community as a result of such an oil spill. And Tom asks, can we not have a port authority official on board for every transaction to supervise them and ensure that uh, regulations and best practices are followed. We already uh, ensure that regulations and best practices are followed. Uh, whenever there's an incident, it tends to be, and, and, and I'm sure viewers or listeners will have seen the documentaries about all the different accidents that happen. They are a cumulative effect of a number of uh, small failings, which unfortunately on this instance line up to lead to, to this effect. I mean, can we have a port officer or a port representative on board every vessel. Um, I don't think it's possible because of human resources issues. I mean, we're talking about 14 bunker, in, bunker operations happening simultaneously at some, in some cases. We do about 6,000, 7,000 supplies per year. Um, but more importantly, I think that not having a port office on board doesn't mean that the receiving vessel is not subject to scrutiny. The bunker, the bunker supply vessels are subject to a lot of scrutiny and a lot of enforcement from our side. The receiving vessels are calling out a port, which is part of the Paris MOU on the port state control, uh, um, port state control principle. So our colleagues from the GMA are targeting vessels in accordance with EMSA, uh, European Maritime Safety Agency um, guidelines on targeting factors. 
so that we are discouraging all the time substandard ships, so the ships are coal at and not by any means substandard. All right. Well, um, it's a conversation that I'm sure will continue in the coming days. Um, best of luck with the remaining cleanup operation. Captain Gio, thank you for joining us in the Radio Gibraltar studios today. Thank, thank you. Thanks for listening to those highlights from Gibraltar today. I'm Kelly M. Borge, the show's producer. We're live on Radio Gibraltar Monday to Friday from 1 to 2, getting behind the headlines. And you can catch up here whenever you like. Until next time, have a good one. GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand.